This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we're bringing Matt Wass to talk cattle and pets in the world of tech. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio with Andrew Sullivan. It is great to be back. I'm glad you finally scheduled one of these when I'm not traveling. You know, honestly, I've been scheduling them so you've been traveling. I, I'm and I start- accidentally scheduled it where you weren't. I am really starting to think that. Like, when, when is Andrew's calendar busy? That's when I'm going to schedule That's this. That's pretty much it. Actually, I stopped looking at your calendar because it was usually busy, and I was just like randomly like, eh, let's try this one. Oh, he's he's not available. So actually, what happened here is we we did we scheduled this, and Andrew was busy. He was traveling, so I was nice enough to reschedule. It was very kind of you. Yeah, this was scheduled when I was in New York City, and because I don't want everyone to not. think that you're just gone, I want people to know that you still exist. Are you sure that's not what you want? Well, I mean, if I wanted that, I would ha- make it happen. <laughs> I'm not sure if I should be honored or intimidated, or I would just suggest you test your brakes later. Yeah, yeah, make sure my badge still works. Yeah, that's that sort of thing. So uh, today we've brought in a very special guest from over the pond, across the pond, over the pond. From the future. Over the river and through the woods. He is six hours in front of us. He is. He also lives in the country, apparently. Um, Matt Watts, hi. Hi, guys. How you doing? Doing great. So, uh, Matt, it, for people who are not aware of your magnitude of importance, um, could you please <laughs> tell everyone what you do here at NetApp? Well, with a build-up like that, I don't know where to start. Um, so I've, I've been with NetApp for 13 years, and um, I'm currently the Director of Technology and Strategy for NetApp in EMEA, um, which I guess kind of means two things. Um, I work very closely with product operations, the advanced technology groups, um, to, to understand from them kind of where we're going for the future. And then I spend most of my time um, with our customers, our largest customers, our partners, um, understanding kind of where they're going and trying to kind of marry the two things together and talking about kind of what the future looks like for us and also for the companies that we work with. So you know, do we have one of those in, in the U.S.? I mean, in, if we do, how is that role different in EMEA? How does it adjust? Yeah, so, so I guess you do have people like this. In fact, when, when I kind of took on this role of Director of Technology and Strategy, when we realized we kind of needed that role in, uh, in EMEA, um, it was funny when I started then looking into APAC and into the US, I suddenly found there were quite a few other people called directors of technology and strategy. And there was no strategy behind how that happened. It just seemed to kind of happen in different areas. Um, so people like Jeff Baxter and um, you know Michael Johnson, there's a, there's a whole sort of group of us that, that, that kind of do a similar kind of function. Um, you could say we're kind of evangelists, but I don't like to use that word. So do you guys all have like a special retreat where all the directors assemble? <laughs> just like like the Avengers. Yeah, directors <laughs> assemble. <laughs> the directors assemble. I like it. Um, no, so so actually we don't. I mean, there's there's a few forums that we do have um, where we, we kind of try and keep keep in touch with each other and share ideas and thoughts, um, but but nothing nothing kind of too formal. Okay, so other than dressing much better than our American counterparts, um, you guys are doing pretty much the same things. I guess it depends which um, dressing you're referred to. I mean, I've been known for wearing a kilt on occasion. Um, but, uh, <laughs> That's part of it. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine Baxter in a kilt? Whoa. 
yeah. <laughs> There's an image for you. Sorry, yeah, sorry, can. Jeff. I can say that because he's my manager. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, it's Review fun. time's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> no, we. I, to be honest, I, mean, I, th- we, I think we're all much more casual than we used to be. Um, I, I'm, I'm usually kind of a jeans and a polo shirt kind of guy, and that seems to be the um, that seems to be the kind of the new suit, if you like, for uh, certainly across Europe. Yeah, I don't know. I guess because me and Andrew are just kind of like t-shirts and jeans kind of guy. We think anyone who wears a shirt that you have to button is dressing up. <laughs> I'm usually found in an A-team top. Oh yeah, there we go. You have to button that, too, but only the top part. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, enough of this pleasantry. Let's get down to business. So, um, Matt, you wrote a blog, uh, and it was about animals, um, but not in the the traditional sense. Uh, So uh, I read it today um, because I want to make sure it was fresh in my mind. And the idea was behind this this concept of numbers and quality of care of these animals. Um, So rather than me going and spoiling it for everybody i'm gonna let you walk us through it and how you came to write this blog and what sort of uh lessons you've learned that you put into it yeah so um so i think i think most people will be familiar with the analogy from you know pets and cattle because we've been we've been using them IT for quite a while right and so me living in the country there's quite a lot of kind of external influences here that, that really kind of bring that analogy home to me and you know i've been doing a number of presentations recently and i've been reflecting back on kind of how much my conversations have changed over the last probably 10 years um, and if i think back to sort of that first time um, you know when i was talking to companies and i first started working with netapp we used to go out and have big infrastructure discussions with companies who wanted to talk about infrastructure um, and that infrastructure would run a, a number of kind of key applications and those would create a little bit of data um, and, and our focus was the infrastructure and how do we protect that data as we kind of rolled forward and we started to think about virtualization suddenly the infrastructure discussions became less you know it became more commoditized or maybe more modular mid-range type systems the, the definition of what is data started to grow because suddenly your data wasn't just what was created by the application, it is the application. It's the application, the operating system, the virtual machine, and the data being created. And the number of applications started to grow. And if we kind of look at where we are now and we start thinking about the future, increasingly that infrastructure discussion is becoming less. You know, now we're very much talking about x86, commodity type platforms. The number of applications is starting to, to, to grow dramatically and the, the scope of kind of what is data going forward you know if we think about software defined you know what well, if it's defined by software it's defined by data um, and and I kind of thought if you put the pets to cattle analogy on top of that it just didn't feel like it really extended broadly enough to kind of cover just how big that conversation is and how big that change has been if that kind of makes sense it, it does make sense. And I think that we see a lot of that happening with the change in applications, right? In that, in particular, before Amazon, before arguably even virtualization, the the infrastructure was what provided all of those robust services, things like HA and disaster recovery and et cetera, to the applications. And most of us have made our careers off of designing infrastructure that provides, you know, five, six, seven, nines of availability. But now we have applications that are you know, to the, to the point that you make in your blog post, right, they're, they're cattle even more so, right, or chickens, depending on your, your which animal you want to pick on, right, or bacteria, where they have no reliance on the infrastructure. All of those services are being provided at the application layer because they just assume the infrastructure is disposable. Yeah. 
and and that was and that was really where the, the so I was trying to go with the blog post, you know, and, and just for those people who kind of haven't heard about it before, haven't sort of heard that pets to cattle analogy, um, and and as you say, it is in the post. But the idea behind pets was that you know in that that early day, those early days when it was about the infrastructure, you know, we we owned our servers and we treated them as if they were pets. We gave them names. My first servers were asterisk and obelisk. Um, and we really took care of them. We fed them. We watered them. If they started to get sick, we made sure we did whatever we could to, to kind of care for them. We treated them like we do our pets. And then as that kind of virtualization era started to happen, you know, suddenly, you know, we still had physical servers, but we were running lots and lots of virtual servers on top of them. And we weren't giving them names, you know, or if we did, it was just server one, server two, server three. And we had a lot, lot more of them. We still cared for them. We still, you know, if they started to get sick, we would try and make them better. But at some point, you know, if they got so sick, you know, you shoot them, eat them, and you replace them with another one. So that was that kind of cattle piece. But it says I started to think about, you know, when we start thinking of serverless computing, Lambda functions, kind of containers and microservices, all that sort of stuff. I don't think that's, I don't think cattle goes far enough. And I think that's where this kind of idea of insects or, you know, <clears throat> bacteria, I've heard somebody else use that as well. Where we're starting to talk now about, you know, tiny little um, kind of these these tiny little things, these insects, these microservices or containers that exist to serve a very specific purpose, often carrying something that's much much heavier than than, than they are themselves. If you think of ants, um, and you know, suddenly we have you know potentially tens of thousands of these things. Um, and what we're going to now start thinking of is that these aren't distinct. People will continue to have pets because they'll continue to have applications that make sense to run on this kind of pet type infrastructures. We'll continue to see the growth of virtual infrastructures, you know, as people continue to push more and more into virtual environments. But when we start thinking about third platform, we start thinking about the next generation of social, of mobile, of kind of cloud type, um, you know, infrastructures and applications. Increasingly, that third platform is much, much more like insects. And somehow we've got to now start to work out how do we put platforms, technologies in place that underpin all of these. Um, and then something that allows us to kind of have visibility into all of them because they will all coexist with each other. Yeah, and I, I think the insect analogy works not only because of numbers, but also because of the hive mentality, and because these animals, these yeah. insects, ants and bees and that sort of thing, they they work in coordination. They all have specific functions, and they all have communication with each other. So you know, we're dealing with things in in you know technology and Internet of Things and containers, which insects have been doing for you know thousands of years. They've they've perfected it, and we can look to them as influences for how we're, we treat our technology today. Exactly. I mean, it's no coincidence that Docker call it swarm, you know, because that's, you know, because the, the affinity is, is absolutely there. Um, so so I, that for me kind of really fascinates me when you start to think about how these things are changing and, and the, the growth and kind of scope and opportunities around kind of microservices is something that I'm hearing that the, the use cases are huge. I mean, but the, the most common use case and when you really start to think about, you know, the, 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 the quantity of these microservices, you know, I ask people, you know, how many of you use Apple Siri? Um, I shouldn't say this, but Apple would be very disappointed if they found out how few people actually use that when I ask the question. Um, but if you've, you've ever used it, you press the button and it takes a couple, you know, half a second for the kind of Siri to come to life. And it's because it's starting a microserver just for you. And it has one purpose, which is to come to life and broker the connection from you to the backend Siri system. And once it's made that connection, it's responded to your request, it dies. 
you know, and these are happening. Hundreds of thousands of these are kind of coming to life and dying um, to support this, this, this kind of this new type of uh, of activity, this new type of application. So, you know, when you, so that's the extreme. That's kind of really pushing it to the boundaries. But I asked um, an aerospace company recently. I said, you know, are you looking at containers and microservices, you know, Docker in particular, thinking that they would say no, you, you know, because I couldn't really, I couldn't think of the use case. And the guy said, yeah, absolutely. And I asked him, you know, tell me more. And he said, well, if you think about it, the avionics system on an aircraft is usually very bespoke and very, very small and needs to be very secure. He said, so that's difficult for us to manage. But what we now do is we develop the avionics systems inside Docker containers. When the aircraft lands, we simply move the Docker containers straight onto the onboard avionics systems. And hey, presto, we've done the upgrade. It's incredibly efficient. It's incredibly secure. And it's mobile because it has less dependency on the kind of underlying hardware. And that's where I think this gets really interesting is we're starting to see use cases now in what were very potentially very traditional industries as well as these much more advanced industries that we would normally associate them with. So as these applications are changing, as this deployment model, are we seeing that change how storage is being consumed, how storage is being managed? So I, so I think to some degree, and again, it, it, I mean, it very much does depend on the application. I think if you take something like, you know, we, we just mentioned Siri, you know, those containers which are literally just coming to knife to broker a connection to a back-end system, there isn't really that much of a requirement for kind of persistent storage for those that type of for that type of system. Um, however, when you start looking at, you know, other implications of this, where these maybe have a longer lifespan or are more um, connected to the back-end system or integrated with the back-end system, then yeah, absolutely, just because they're a smaller version, you know, of the, you know a pet had its own storage, cattle, that still requires the, its own storage, the insects still will as well in certain workloads. Um, so we still have to address how do you provide persistent, consistent, protected and secure storage up into these things for many of the workloads they'll be used to address. I think it's also important to point out that, so one of one of the conversations that I have frequently is around how storage is being consumed by these new applications, right? And that when we think about how storage has been provisioned and consumed for the last 30 years, it's kind of the same, right? We, we have this process that is well known to storage administrators at this point of, I receive a request, right? It lands on my desk, however it gets there, right? Carrier pigeon, service now, whatever that happens to be. And the first thing that I do after I receive that request is go and start an argument with the requester, right? Well, did you really want a terabyte of storage or did you really mean you wanted 200 gigabytes of storage? And we have this back and forth bickering. And once we finally settle on the capacity, then the storage administrator likes to ask a bunch of questions that never have an answer, right? What's your block size? What's your read-write ratio? How many IOPS do you need? What's your latency requirement, right? All of these other things that have almost never had an answer, right? And we go through this whole process, and at, at the end of all of that information gathering, we leverage what I like to call experience and intuition, right? which is more or less guessing, where do I want to provision this volume against? And at the end of that, we go and we hand back their 100 gigabytes of storage and whatever protocol that they need, and we never touch it. It exists forever. right? We might expand the size of it eventually, but it never gets destroyed. It, it's there, and we move it around from system to system as they need it, or as we upgrade systems, right, et cetera, but it, it's, it's just there. And you compare that or you contrast that to how containerized applications, how these insects are consuming storage, 
and a volume will get created and destroyed in minutes sometimes, right? The average lifespan of a container is something like 54 minutes, right? right? So creating and destroying a volume in that amount of time is not unusual. And storage administrators, we have to adapt to that. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I think is, is, you know, again, if you sort of think back to that, the, you know, pets, cattle, insects, you think of that journey where we were, it used to be big infrastructure, virtual, and now this, this sort of microservices. <clears throat> and you, you think about kind of the, the, the change that we've seen as we go across that, you know, it's gone from something that was very rigid um, to something that was a little bit more virtualized, a little less rigid. You know, sometimes the virtualization groups have taken more responsibility for that provisioning, that storage provisioning, to something that will kind of almost has to happen instantly. You know, somebody will just say, you know, a, a container coming online to perform a service isn't going to be something that a, an administrator goes on and says, I need a container. The container will come online because that's how the application was written. Um, and it will expect to be able to um, provision whatever resources it needs behind it in a completely automated fashion. So, so you're absolutely right. You know, it's gone from very, very rigid in those early days to slightly less rigid, slightly more automated as we went to virtual to this new world where it has to be completely software defined. It has to be that the container can literally come to life, bring whatever resources it needs and then die again afterwards. And you can't put anyone in the way of that because you kill the whole concept of using that new type of, uh, of development environment. So from your, your perspective, do you see that as a threat to storage administrators, right, where applications teams who can't get storage in that time frame, right, in that on-demand manner, is, is that causing them to work around or, or go past and, and sort of ignore infrastructure teams that aren't able to deliver that? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll, just, give you, I'll just give you my viewpoint and, uh, and we'll just put it out there and, and I'm sure that it'll upset a few people. But I think the reality was that, you know, when we had those kind of physical infrastructures, I was a storage admin. You know, I was an AIX guy. I used to know the, the, the volume group manager inside out. And it was complicated stuff and you could build a career around it. Um, the simple fact is, as we started to move towards virtualization, there were many, many reasons that, we, that, that, that that's happened. But one of those reasons was because you had the virtual team saying, I want to take more control of the infrastructure. I want to be able to provision the network. I want to be able to provision the storage. I don't expect to have to go and talk to different groups to, for, in order for that to happen. So the role of the storage administrator in that virtual world had already become much, much less than it had been before. You know, and they're having to evolve and adapt. If you look forward to the future, um, I don't see, I don't see what the role in a simply a complete kind of microservices container type world. I struggle to see that you would need somebody that was that he was more than just a very small part of their role to, to deal with storage. Now, the simple reality: these worlds all coexist. So we're not saying, you know, that guy's dead and that's never going to happen because we all still have pets, cattle and insects. Um, but the role of the storage administrator for pets, for cattle and for insects is very, very different. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And there's a lot of times where you end up, you know, I'll have a conversation with a storage admin who says, but my job is going away, right? This is, this is, you know, what, what's my role going to be in the future? And, you know, my response is usually something along the lines of, well, it's 2018 and mainframes still exist, right? And two, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have to, you know, evolve and adapt in order to, you know, understand what this new world is looking like and how it's going to affect you and how you can best service, how you can best provide capabilities to those new applications. 
I mean, one of the best bits of advice I was given, and it was it was some career advice, um, and and I do stick to it. Is somebody once told me that you know your job for the year should be to work out how you make your role redundant by the end of the year. So all of the stuff that you're going to do over the course of the next year should be to work out how do you get to a point where either you've automated that or you've found um, other people who can kind of take elements of that on or you've simply made it something that isn't required anymore in order at the end of the year that you find the next set of things that you're going to do instead. Um, and whilst that may be quite a brutal way to look at it, I think everybody has to have that long, hard look at just because this is what I've always done doesn't mean that this is what I should continue to do. Um, the world is changing. It's changing rapidly. Um, and it's not companies like ourselves that are forcing this change to happen. This is happening because this is how companies are evolving, how applications are evolving, how infrastructures are evolving. Everything is evolving. And therefore, we have to be really, really conscious as individuals as to how am I going to evolve at the same pace? What is it that I want to do in the future? Because it damn well won't be what I've been doing in the past. I don't know. There's a bunch of COBOL programmers out there who might disagree with you. Well, but probably not that many of them as they were. They're probably in high demand now, actually. I guess, the, I guess at some point in the future, we'll have less storage engineers who are paid a fortune because, as you say, there'll be, there'll be less, less of them out there. And, but, but the ones that are out there will be in higher demand. That, that would be our uh, white rhinos. Yes. <laughs> Which I, I saw that the last male white rhino recently died. So He was a COBOL program, programmer. So... All right, man, what else did you want to cover? I mean, that's, and that's the, kind of linked to what I was saying before about, you know, we always have to constantly think about kind of how things are changing. Um, one of the, the, the other things that, that's always interested me is that we live in a technology bubble, right? Uh, I mean, you guys know this, you know, you've been in the industry for a while. We live in a world where technology is constantly changing around us. Um, and I think sometimes we don't appreciate the pace of change because we're living with the with the living in it. And these things are sort of are, are incremental, they're accretive to what we do. Um, and, you know, things just happen and we, and we just feel that it's progress. Um, and, and I quite often say to people, you know, to appreciate the pace of change, you sometimes need to step out of it. And you actually need to just step out and look at, at how much something has changed rather than just kind of living in the bubble. Um, and, and I quite often I'll say to people, look at something personal. Um, and you guys have probably seen me, I blogged on this as well, actually, but this is something I talk about, was the personal thing for me was um, Glastonbury Festival. Uh, you guys have probably, I don't know if, how many people who are listening to this will have heard of Glastonbury Festival. Um, but it's, is that it's, one of those rock and roll shows? It, it is. It's, it's Get off my lawn. Ones. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's the biggest one in the UK. It's about 250,000 people go to Glastonbury Festival. And um, it's it's actually not far from where I live. It's a and for 360 days of the year, this is a field full of cows. There's nothing there, right? It is it, it's farmland. And then for five days of the year, they put up the super fence, um, which is seven miles in perimeter, um, and 250,000 people descend on the festival. So more cattle, right. essentially. So more cattle. That's right. Yeah. Um, I th I don't think it's 250,000 people. Being a techie, I think it's 250,000 IP addresses, right? But um, the, the first year, the process to, to get a ticket, because as I say, I've been going there since David Bowie headlined, right? And um, the process to get a ticket that first year was you phoned up. And you had probably two weeks of hitting the redial button to trying desperately to get that ticket. Last year, the tickets went on sale at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. And by 12 minutes past nine, 220,000 tickets had sold. 
220,000 credit card transactions have been processed and two and a half million people had tried to get a ticket in 12 minutes. <clears throat> so you start to think about the, the technology that's behind that, that has enabled us to go from a two week call center to 12 minutes and two and a half million people. When you get to the festival, that first year I went, there's no technology there back then. If you arrived on the first day and lost your friends, the chances are you weren't gonna see them until you met them at the car going home five days later, right? But that's okay, it's a festival, you made new friends. This year, EE turned up and placed 4G transmitters all over that location. And for one week of the year, it was the UK's most advanced, most powerful Wi-Fi and 4G hotspot for five days. And the farmers loved it because they don't get Wi-Fi any other time of the year. And then for five days, suddenly they're online. I don't know if they even know what to do with it, but they, but they did get it. Not coincidentally, <laughs> that's when they find most of their wives. <laughs> That's it, exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you, so you kind of look at that and you, and you can get very fixated on technology. And by the way, the biggest queue at the festival isn't for the, the, uh, the, the stages and the acts. The biggest queue is for the charging tent for the mobile phones. Um, cause Used to be the bathrooms, to, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the bathrooms have, have improved. They, they've, they were a pretty horrendous. I'm pretty, they were pretty much of a horror story at, uh, at Glastonbury. But uh, I remember the days of the long drops. But I digress. Um, so this year, I, I kind of thought, you know, that's the techie side of things. But there's, the other things you've got to think about is, well, what's been the, the change in terms of the, the kind of acceleration of social and the pace of life? And there were three girls who were sat opposite my, my wife when we were sat in one of the bars. And they were on their phones for like half an hour. They didn't say a word to each other. After half an hour, I was convinced they were talking to each other. It was just easier to do it through an app than it was to actually kind of communicate. And then after kind of half an hour, one of them went, you know, because obviously a, like a Snapchat had taken longer than a second to post or a tweet had taken longer than a second to download. And, you know, I wanted to go over and shake them and go, do you know the technology that's behind this? this is, it's going to space and back. And, you, and what it made me realize was they don't care. All they care about is the app. All they care about is that kind of social experience um, and going forward, that festival will progress, will advance, will become more interesting, more engaging, not because they get better acts, not because they change the layout of the festival. It'll be the mobile experience. How do they engage this new audience, this new group of people with this new set of social mobile type tools that make the festival what they want it to be? And I just think something like that, when we start thinking about our own lives and the companies that we work for, we have to start kind of taking that step back and saying, well, how is this going to affect us going forward? If it can affect something like a festival so dramatically that it's going to affect us as individuals and as organizations. <clears throat> and that's something else that fascinates me is really starting to think about not just technical acceleration, but also these other aspects of it. You know, how does that affect you know, the, 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 the pace of life and the social way that people want to interact. Yeah. Listening to that, I was thinking, man, that's really cool. And at the same time, I'm like, man, that is horrible. <laughs> it, it's, like, it, what are we doing to ourselves? It, it used to be lovely. You go to a festival and you'd all end up chatting with each other. You just made hundreds of friends when you went there because you, you had no technology. And you had nothing and else to do. <laughs> no, that's, that's right. Yeah. And now you just sort of stand there in this field full of kind of mobile phone zombies who are just kind of walking around with their faces illuminated by the pale glow of an iPhone um, and not talking to each other anymore. And the only time they look up is to take a picture of themselves <laughs> to show that they're there. 
that's right yes so which uh, yeah it's it's sad for kind of an older fellow like me because i remember what it used to be like and uh you know we used to actually talk to each other back then but tldr anyway get off my lawn yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so we've lamented the uh advent of technology and also heralded it enough It's kind of a double-edged sword there, right? And uh, it does kind of lend itself to the whole idea of, you know, the field of cattle being replaced by more cattle. Um, But that said, I mean, we talked about cattle, we talked about pets, we talked about insects. Um, At what point do the the containers start to make us their pets? Well, that's that's a really good question. I mean, Andrew sort of said about um, bacteria. I had somebody else kind of talking about that, is that if you think of that sort of granularity, you know, if we project this forward, at some point, even things like containers are going to be too big. You know, we'll start to, to, to evolve. I mean, you know, we start to talk about lambda functions and some of these capabilities. Um, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, the, the analogy will extend itself forward, and, and I hope that we continue to be in charge of all of this or at least we continue to be kind of managing the fabric that all of these things have to exist within so i I was talking with a customer earlier this week on on monday and their goal is ultimately serverless right they they are they they have implemented or in the process of implementing over the past three years this move as much as possible away from having an on-premises data center and hosting their applications there to moving them up into Amazon and Azure with the ultimate goal of of transferring or, or transmuting, I guess, those applications into being serverless functions that, that are able to run inside of that ecosystem. Uh, so it, it's, and this is a financial customer, right? This is not uh, a, and, you know, a brand new startup or an agile company or anything like that. Uh, so it was very interesting to see this progression. And the, the thought that I had, and, and I would be interested in your perspective is, you know, are we, are these things getting more complex than we are able to effectively manage? Wow, that's a, so that's a good question. Um, and I kind of think it goes back to, 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 to almost this, the, 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 you know, what is the, the storage administrator's role in this going forward? Um, I think, you know, we've had categories of people for years. You know, we had the storage guys, the network guys, or the the, 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 the SAN guys, then the, the, the server guys, the application guys, the network guys. Now we've got the virtualization guys. But these are very sort of traditional categories of people. Um, and I think sometimes we kind of hold on to that. You know, I want to be the storage guy going forward. Um, and I actually think we, we've got to sort of project ourselves forward and think about that kind of world. What are the categories in that world? What are the roles and responsibilities in that world? Because it's definitely not storage, network, server, application. Um, and I think once you start to work out what the roles are that are um, responsibilities that are required in that, that world, you can start to, people can start to give themselves a map towards how they get there. You know, what do you want to become? Um, so yes, we will have to have some controls in place to be able to do that. I think, you know, even some of the tools that we're starting to really enhance with um, the work that we've been doing around on command insight and some of the future work that we're doing because of um, the work the, the green cloud acquisition and some of the capabilities that will give us um, i think that will start to help to provide more kind of insights and control around that that kind of capabilities um, but companies are going to have to start thinking about that how do we retain some sense of and i don't like to call it control i think it's a sense of order because actually that world is a little bit less controlled. You know, that world where we're potentially spinning up thousands or tens of thousands of microservices in containers, 
you actually want a little bit more freedom, a little bit more, um, a little bit more sort of, uh, well, a little less control in that world. There still has to be boundaries, um, but it, it's, it's much less rigid. Um, but we are going to have to think about, you know, how do we sort of, you know, keep uh, an eye on it? How do we continue to keep insights into it and understand what is going on? Well, I think for us as storage administrators, we've we've already seen this happen to our network brethren, right? It started with with uh, virtualization, and you know, prior to virtualization, nobody outside of the network team really even knew what a VLAN was. Never mind cared what a VLAN was. And suddenly, the the network team was being asked for hundreds of VLANs for all of these virtual machines. And over time, that's progressed where now there's overlay networks. And they're organized, they're created, they're destroyed, they're managed completely in an automated fashion. And, you know, the network guys that are working at the physical layer just kind of throw their hands up and say, I, I don't know what's going on. There's at least two layers of abstraction. You know, you, wh whoever's managing that overlay network needs to figure it out. So I, I wonder if in the future we're going to start to see the same things happening with the storage side of it's being managed in an automated fashion it's being provisioned it's being consumed it's being destroyed right without any hands-on type of interaction and how does that change how we do day-to-day -day enterprise storage management so I, I i i pretty much completely agree with you andrew i think um you know the the, the world is changing you know and we we saw it, you know the same with servers you know Typically, once we started to, to virtualize, you know, we we've, you know, we used to have server administrators. You know, that was in that kind of pet era. Um, and as we started to virtualize, and that the 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 servers became kind of more modular, that that sort of approach, more x86 type approach. You know, there was less of a requirement to have people whose job was to manage the the physical servers. And exactly as you said, that's now started to float down into the networks, um, and it will increasingly drift down into the storage and more storage, more kind of data management type capabilities will disappear from the, 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 the kind of the typical physical um, storage administrators type role. Um, now, as we say, this is a transition um, and all transitions take time and there will still be a very physical aspect to this for the foreseeable future. Um, but increasingly, you know, you've got to only look at SolidFire and HCI and the platforms that we're bringing out, which is, you know, it's completely automated. That's the whole concept behind it is resource pools that you simply consume from. Um, and, you know, I, I think our founder, you know, said, you know, I think, and, and I won't repeat exactly what he said, um, but he kind of said it's for people who hate storage. Um, so, but it, as I say, these things will coexist, but we do have to, what my fear, I think, is that people will try to hold on to the past um, and without, which will hold back the, the possibilities that companies have for the future. Um, and I think that's the... The, the thing that, that, that I certainly talk to most CIOs about is that it will not be technology that holds you back. I suspect it will be people that hold you back. Um, and your responsibility as a CIO is to show people how where they could be is so much better than where they are today. And if you do that, if you show people why where they could be is so much better, they will come forward with you. But you have to help them on that path. And I suspect we've got a lot of storage admins out there, a lot of people in those kind of roles who probably don't really know what the future looks like, but are very, very worried about what their role is within it. I would agree with that. And I, I talk to storage administrators every day who have that perception that, you know, the, the unknown is scary and it, it comes down to embracing it. It comes down to learning new skills and, you know, well, ultimately evolving. Yeah. So I mean, here's something that's kind of a bit random for you. 
Um, I, I so a few a few months ago, I, I was I kind of wanted to understand a lot more about kind of DevOps and what developers, more specifically, what developers looked felt like. You know, what does it feel like to be a developer? What do they actually want? And I found myself talking to a whole bunch of people who weren't developers that were telling me what they think developers wanted. Um, so I decided that. I would learn to be a developer. So I've been, I'm now an iOS developer and um, I'm actually writing um, iOS apps and things like that. And I have to be honest, I've loved it. It's been a completely new skill for me, something I never ever thought that I would do. And I'm now using that and I'm starting to write a few apps that could become apps for NetApp. How could I write an app that would help our sales guys? How could I write an app that would do something else? You know, and that that's so different from what I do today, but I took on a new skill. And now I'm thinking about how that new skill could automate or take over some of the manual things that I currently do today. Are, so, are, are know, you writing the next field, but are you writing the next flappy bird, but with a NetApp twist? Absolutely. Yeah. Flappy NetApp. The faster you swipe your finger, the better performance you get. That's it, yeah. It's like a little, oh, hamster wheel. That's what you do. You move the hamster, and he he runs fast, and that makes your storage run fast. That's right. Uh, copyright by me. <laughs> I'll get working on it. You've been commissioned. <laughs> But it's but what what I know I kind of you, you started me talking there so I you struggle to stop me but you can always cut me off, um, but it was what's been kind of really interesting as I, as, I, as I've sort of gone through this process as well is when you start to learn some of these things you realise the um, you realise some of the kind of the the the, the sort of lies that you get told um, and one of the things that made me realise is we actually asked a company to develop an app for us. And it was it was a UK thing. We wanted an app for a very specific purpose, and and we kind of got that that builders thing, which was you ask them for the app, and they suck breath in over their bottom teeth. You know, God, that'll be expensive. And the quote was like twenty five grand to pull together a fairly basic app for us. Now, obviously, I've learned to do some of the development. I've put time into it, but I now know what's involved in building an app, and it's not twenty five grand. And I kind of look back and I think we're, it's a little bit like websites used to be. You know, you go back 10 or 15 years ago and you had somebody, somebody's job to develop a website. And if you ask them for, to develop a website for you, they go, that'd be expensive. And now we write our own. You guys, you know, why is the internet broken? You know, but we build our own websites. It's just, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty easy. The tools are there to do it. Um, and I think kind of app development will be quite similar going forward as well people will suddenly realize that it's not that mystical you know to be a basic app developer actually is something that most people could turn their hands to so again it's that kind of cycles of change that we go through what's new and complicated and mystical over time becomes something that's commoditized and something that we all almost embrace and take advantage of and then something new comes along so it's that constant cycle of technology and cycle of life I don't know, man. I, I mean, I, I think podcasts are some of the hardest things to do, and um, it's going to be expensive for you to have this published, Matt. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to there being a, a virtual Justin, can, you know, a little bit like our Elio. I think a lot of people and, uh, are yeah. looking forward to that. Do you remember Max Headroom? I, yes, <laughs> I do. But I mean, I'm just wondering. I'm wondering how long it'll take us to train a virtual Justin, and what the hell we need to oh, feed it. We can't be trained. Data set. Just lots of pizza. Who who was it? I think it was Microsoft released the AI bot on Twitter, and it took something like 24 hours for it to turn very very badly. Was it Clippy? No, it wasn't Clippy. <laughs> it should have been Clippy. But I mean, to your point about you know things being expensive, um, because you've done the development, you realize what it takes. 
but coming from the standpoint of someone who can't, right? If, if you're calling somebody to do your website or to make your app because you can't do it yourself, you don't get to set the price, right? Because it's a, it's a skill that you don't have and the effort and the work that it takes to go into it is something that would take, you know, some people months or years to learn. So it may be worthwhile for them to pay that extra premium to do that sort of thing. Now, I'm not saying that's right, <laughs> right? But I get why things get priced that way. Yeah, and and I and I think, you, yes, you're right. You know, it's, it's somebody else will do it. It's not core to what you do. Therefore, pay a slight premium because it's probably cheaper and quicker than for you to develop the skills yourself. Um, but I think it's it's always worth questioning that, especially in you know in industries and organisations like we are today. Um, you know, apps are something that we do push out there. I mean, if you think of the number of apps we kind of have for the events that we run, for you know, ActiveIQ, for all of the tools that we have, you know, it gets to a point where you think actually apps are something that we should be doing ourselves because they're our engagement with our customer, a connection point with our customer. Therefore, right, let's let's start building that skill. So. I think that's kind of where it gets to is it's at some point you start to realize that actually part of your business is that, that that engagement, that social mobile type engagement. And at that point, you know, that creates opportunities for people um, to, to, to learn new skills and to, to, to start to satisfy those kind of those, those sort of roles and, and, uh, and responsibilities. My summary on all of this is my role has changed dramatically from what, what it used to be. And I'll leave you with a kind of a Douglas Adams quote. And, and I love this. He used, to, he used to have this little quote, you know, he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and all that stuff. But he was a bit of a philosopher and he used to have this quote. And it said, I never really knew where I wanted to go, but I think I ended up where I wanted to be. And, and I kind of love that because I don't think it's easy for us to say in a year's time, I'm going to be here or in two years time, I'm going to be here. But I think accepting the fact that where you're going to be is probably different than where you currently are is a healthy thing. And all it took for him to realize that was to have his entire world blown up, including That's his house. Right. Yes. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> a, a minor event. Yeah. Just a minor event. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, a little bit of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy knowledge dropped by Matt Watts. Um, Matt, if people wanted to reach you on the Twitters or wherever, how would they find you? Yeah, so I'm on the Twitters. On uh, It's just at MTJ Watts, just Matthew Thomas James Watts, my initials. And also my blog is on watts-innovating.com. That's a much more clever title than my blog name, just, just so you know. You incorporated your own brand. I didn't do that. Well, I am, I am partly in marketing. Yeah. <laughs> brand wizard, Matt Watts. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Mr. Matt Watts for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. So we're going to have to start differentiating between our different cattle. We're going to have to come up with cattle companies. Don't they already do that? We're going to have like a longhorn container versus a Hereford container versus a Holstein container. Wow, you really know your cows. You know, I'm not not saying that I wasn't in 4-H, but I may have been in 4-H. You look like a 4-H kind of guy. It is the largest uh, school organization. It is. I was in Future Farmers of America briefly. That didn't work out. I can't imagine. I did learn how to spread grass seed, though.